Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. In today's episode, we travel far. We travel to continental Europe, to France, to speak with Benoit Balmurray. Benoit is the general counsel at Michelin um, and has taken that position, been in that position since 2014. It's a marvellous story. They usually are, aren't they? But particularly with Benoit, he started off at Renault. He's had time at Alcatel, at Dassault. He even, he takes us before even um, that part of his career. And the key theme is this, I think. Benoit is where he is because someone early on in his career took a bet on him. And that's what we should all be doing. We should be taking bets on people because that's how we grow, we nurture, and we make people successful. We believe in them more than they believe in themselves. And that's precisely, I think, why Benoit is where he is today. He's obviously clearly a talent too, and uh, overall just an incredible incredibly generous and a really thoughtful human being. So I had a fantastic discussion or a fantastic time speaking to Benoit. Lots of highlights. Probably one I will call out is the strategy his legal department uses in allocating a legal account manager for each one of his business units at Michelin. I thought that was a great idea because in any kind of customer or client-centric organisation, you allocate account managers to the customer or the client. And that's exactly what Benoit has done with his team, allocating legal account managers to his customer, that is the business unit. So I thought that was a fantastic um, insight. Anyway, it's a great discussion. I've gone on long enough. So in the usual fashion, sit back, chillax and enjoy the episode. Benoit, welcome to the show. It's fantastic to have you on board. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Jim, thanks a lot for having me. I'm delighted to be with you and looking forward to the discussion as well. Fantastic. Now, as usual, it's an international show. I haven't been in New York at the time. Tell the audience where you are at the present time, Benoit. I'm in France. I'm in the very centre of France in Clermont-Ferrand in Auvergne, which is a very nice region. Fantastic. And the borders are starting to open up a little bit, so there's a little bit more travel happening, although we do have another strain out there right now, so making people a little bit nervous. But in any event, what I usually like to do, Benoit, is kick off by asking you to tell us, you're obviously right now the general counsel of one of the world's strongest brands, Michelin, but you weren't always general counsel, Michelin. Take us right back to the early days before you even kicked off your career. What got you interested in law? What got you to take that path? And then we'll, there may be some, um, some important pivotal moments for you early in your career. I'd love to explore that with you. Sure. Actually, it's an odd story because I really didn't know what to do when I was in high school. And I come from a family of professionals who are all in love with their jobs. Both my parents were absolutely fascinated with their own jobs. My father was a civil servant in the French Ministry of Labor, and my mother was a psychoanalyst. And really, their priority were their jobs. And my, uh, I, was, I had an older sister who was a brilliant student, and she spent most of her free time in books. And I was a teenage boy not, you know, who didn't know what to do with his life, and, and virtually I could not compete with the, the other three. So 
that's a tough background and context and to grow up in. I, I can well imagine that. And a bit of pressure perhaps, Benoit, at that time? Do you feel some pressure on yourself? Very much so. So, but so it, since I couldn't, you know, play on, uh, you know, in the same playground as the others, I decided just to have fun with my friends and, uh, you know, live the good life, which I pretty much did most of my youth until when the time came to choose a path. I really didn't know what to do, so I did something pretty uh, easy, which was to follow the family tradition and become a lawyer. As a matter of fact, we've had lawyers for over two hundred years in my family. Every, uh, you know, wow. That's a long heritage, I gotta say. It is a very long and heavy heritage, but I decided to be a, a lawyer. The only thing I didn't want to do was most of them were, were in the judiciary, in the French judiciary. Uh, that I knew I didn't want to do, but I, I went to law school because it was, you know, pretty much the thing to do. There was no pressure, but it was a culture. Let's put it this way, in my family. At the same time, I think I had the, the, a really deep belief that uh, law is, is what separates us from chaos and that, that there is a very important, there's a noble thing, you know, in, in the practice of law. And that was a very strong belief. So, so I, I started law schools, you know, law school like that. At the same time, I really didn't know what my career plan was. So I really did what interested me at the time. So I'm a little bit like a very lucky guy who stacks up bricks in, you know, just as he pleases. And at the end of the day... There's a house. There's a big, beautiful house. I don't know if it's big and beautiful, but it makes sense. Let's put it this way. And I owe it to the people that I've met throughout my career because they are the people who helped me make sense with the bricks because I don't think I could have done, them, done it without them. So we're my bosses or my teams. And we'll talk a bit about that because I, I, I love doing a bit of a deeper dive on the impact of people, the mentoring, the influences in your life and how important that is and how it does shape careers. So certainly I love to, a bit later on, we'll do a deep dive into that. But to kick off, I think you went in-house pretty much straight away in your career. Tell me about that decision. Was that a deliberate one or, or just one of those bricks that happened to be placed in front of you? Well, actually, I didn't know when I was in law school, I, I applied you know, to become an intern in, in, a, in several law firms and, and in several companies to try and find out which environment I would be, I would be happier, happiest in. And after a while, I, I figured out that, you know, I was more of a company man than, than, a, than a, a lawyer in a law firm, that I wanted to be part of a global project, but be one, you know, in, work in the long term for a project with people from other walks of life, other disciplines. And I really enjoyed the pluridisciplinary aspect of, of working in-house. So uh, I applied to, to companies straight ahead out of law school, and I was lucky. And you landed, I think your first job was at, as an in-house counsel at Reynolds, wasn't it? Correct, correct. Uh, and this is, I think, probably one of the first encounter that, that really, uh, probably sadly one of the most important encounters in my professional life, which was the general counsel at the time was, was Christian Husson. He was uh, Renault's general counsel. And he's had a very odd profile because, as I said earlier, I had studied whatever you know, I found interesting in the way. So I started, I took a first degree in international public law because it was the law of treaties, you know, you know, because I wanted to be an international civil servant. Then I changed my mind, went in the U.S. to study antitrust and environmental law. Then I came back and took a final degree in environmental law in France. But environmental law was only beginning. It was the very early 90s. And there was not, not a lot of jobs. And so the GC came and said, well, you know, you have an international background because I had been you know, wor working also abroad a little bit. And he said, you don't have the qualification, the skills that we're looking for, but you have, you have international experience. So I'll take you into the international contracts team. And uh, he actually made me 
joined that team, but ahead of that team, she was an expert in you know in drafting, and she was you know an incredible technical expert for for international contracts. And she was not initially very thrilled to welcome someone like me. And she gave me a hard time. She corrected every single line I drafted for a year. And, but it was a tough game, but a fair game. And, and she really taught, taught me in the end, you know, what did not kill me, you know, made me stronger. And she really taught me how to draft contracts the hard way, but a very efficient way. Yeah. And some of those early, I've had the same experience too, where you really had very hard taskmasters. And at the time, early in your career, you just can't see the long-term benefit and you grumble and, you, and you're, you're not very happy and so forth. But I tell you, looking back, I wouldn't change that at all. Those hard taskmasters who are actually doing it for you, you might not realize it. You might sometimes think they're being mean or unfair or whatever it is, but there's nothing like that learning in those early years. Absolutely. It's exactly what, what, what I experienced. And so that, that's the first best he made with me was to think that, you know, an odd bird like me would, would fit in. And I, you know, it ultimately worked out. And after a year, he made a second bet, which was even more daring, which is at the time the General Counsel used to have a technical assistant, which was a young lawyer picked amongst uh, the teams who would be his technical assistant to help him work on his own files and try to sort of uh, be some sort of a chief of staff a little bit. And he had a very talented lawyer. She had been doing this for several years and she wanted to take a, a sabbatical for, for a year and she, he needed someone just to fill the gap for a year. And I was just one year into my job and he picked me to replace her. And again, he came to me and he said, you know, last time I came, I, take, I talked to you, I told you, you didn't have the skills, but I was interested in your experience. This time, you don't have the experience, but we're going to give it a shot. So he gave it a shot. And it was a very interesting time because it was a time where, where Renault was actually trying to become an international player. And there was a prerequisite for that is, is because it was, a, it was a state-owned company at the time. So we needed to, to privatize the company. And of course, this was his personal file to you know to to deal with and so i got you know i was incredibly lucky to assist him in the privatization of uh you know a disadvantaged company so it was fantastic experience and after years his technical assistant did not come back so i kept the job and a few years down the road the renault nissan alliance came in and he needed someone to help him draft a contract and negotiate them and uh, and take care of the due diligence aspects and everything and coordinate some of the stuff for him so i was again incredibly privileged to assist him for the strategic file so it was a lot of bets that he placed well so, so a couple of things one why do you think he placed the bet on you because there would have been presumably many lawyers he could have cho chosen. Anything at the time that you think made you stand? And, you know, in those early years, of course, you're only a few years in. Why has he picked you? What has stood out, do you think? I think one thing that helped is, is that, first of all, I had an LLM, and there were not that many French LLMs in my generation. And I knew how to draft in English because, you know, in American law schools or English law schools, you get to draft a lot. So that was the first thing. The second thing is that in my old days, there was a military service which was mandatory for French men. And I was lucky enough to join a program called Cooperation, where instead of being in the army, I could be a civil servant abroad. And I have 
served in the French embassy in Warsaw in Poland right after the fall of the Berlin Wall. And I was working for diplomats. And of course, I was doing, you know, minutes of meetings and very, very uh, administrative things. But it was a fascinating experience. And I think he was interested in, in the few things that I had, you know, gathered. And, you know, I love the theme of taking bets on people. That is what makes people grow, successful, changes lives. And for those of us who've got an opportunity to take bets on people, I just can't recommend it highly enough because those, and you don't have perfect information. It's never a guarantee, but taking bets on people and people surprise you on the upside when you show some belief and you believe, well, essentially you believe in them more than they do at that time because you can see the potential. They are my favorite stories, Benoit, I've got to say. I was terrified, let me tell you. I spent the first five years of my career terrified. I, I worked days and nights and weekends just to make sure I, I would just survive. And, uh, and he gave me a hard time during the first years because, of course, I was not, not at the level you know, that he expected. So I had to make myself. But, but it was fun. Honestly, at the same time, it was a lot of fun. So clearly, incredibly formative for you. One question in relation to that part of your career, is there anything you would do differently now with the benefit of hindsight? Anything you do differently for that part of your early career? In hindsight, I think I would probably be a little more process-oriented. I was focusing on closing deals after deals and, you know, and files after files, and, and, and that's pretty much all I focused on for, for, for years. And I would probably be a little more process-oriented. I think I would take a closer look at legal at, uh, information technology because it was emerging at the time. And I must say, it took me a long, while to, a long time to, you know, take a closer look at it, and, and, and I regret that. Probably learn another language. That would have been, but I didn't have much time to do that, I, I must confess. But uh, yeah, that's what I would have done. Fantastic. All right, let's move then, let's go to 2014, when you took on the position, your current position of the General Counsel. As I said, as one of the strongest brands in the world, Michelin. First question, Benoit, why you? Why do you think that you were chosen amongst, I'm sure there would be many candidates, any particular reason you think that you stood out of the you know, stood out or above the crowd to be chosen there, any skill sets, relationships, what, what do you think it was? I'd say it's probably for them to, to answer that question, but uh, it's a tough one. But I think it's uh, very much my team. That, I mean, in my previous job, I was the general counsel for, to, uh, of a software company, enterprise software company, a, a fantastic French company called Dassault System, which is, I mean, a star in, in, in France and internationally. It's an incredible company. And I had a company, the growth of that company, which had more than double in size and, oh, you know, uh, during my time there. And in fact, when I joined that company, the, the legal department was 19 people. And when I, I, when I left, it was almost 70 people. And I think, you know, it has continued to grow since then because the, com the company was gross, was absolutely amazing. And uh, in fact, the company when I joined was more or less an R&D lab and uh, who was actually developing the greatest enterprise software in the world. And they were so clever. They're so smart. They had a partnership very long time partnership with IBM and IBM was actually distributing the software for them so they could really focus on, on creating the best possible software. And when I joined, they told me we'd like to grow the second leg and to become you know, both production and distribution company and be a full bloom software editor. And over time, that's what we became. We, we ultimately actually purchased IBM's division who was who used to distribute our own software. So it was like insourcing your own Salesforce. 
which was amazing. And which meant that overnight, we had to create our own, or we had to hire people in 14 countries, create legal, legal teams in 14 different countries. We had to come up with our own contractual templates because we didn't have an, our own contractual paper. We had to create our own policies. So in fact, we used to tell ourselves, we're very young, but we can be modern. So, so that, that, that's, that's the flip side. And I think that's this experience that Michelin was interested in is, is, is to, you know, how could we take the legal department Michelin had a tremendous legal team because my predecessor had assembled a pool of talent that was really second to none. But the idea really was to try and take it to a new era. And I think that's what they were interested in, what we had created at Desmond System. Fantastic. And of course, I have to say, uh, the, the reputation of the Michelin legal team and the transformation since you joined is legendary. I'm going to get to that before I do, and we do a bit of a deeper dive there. When you first joined, what did you do? How did you get your arms around what your early priorities were going to be and what did you land on? What did you land on as those priorities? The way that the, our department was structured when I joined was very much like a traditional law firms of the 90s, something like that. It was like very strong offices around the world with the equivalent of, of the local partners being the general counsels, very strong, very high uh, technical skills but very independent from one another, working in a siloed mode very often and just cooperating just on occasions, not really. And so I came in and I asked the data, the global data, and people look at, look at me with a weird look on their face because we didn't have the data. We didn't have a global budget. We didn't, you know, even the headcount wasn't that clear. So what I did is we launched a group-wide survey called Getting to Know You Better with a lot of questions about, you know, to each and every legal team. Uh, to, it was like an X-ray of each team's organization and activity. And we gave them sufficient time. You know, we, there was a lot of explaining around uh, the survey, the purpose of the survey and, and what our expectations were. And then, you know, we took just as long to consolidate the data. And then, you know, that's how we set the priorities. And so tell me, what were the, the, were the priorities really focused around how do I create a less siloed and a more collaborative global team? Have I summarized that well? Uh, perfect. It's exactly what it is. Absolutely. Trying, trying to move from a siloed system to a, a global collective intelligence. And then now, kind of looking back now on where you started that journey and where you are right now, can you kind of call out a couple of things that you're, you're super proud of, Benoit? What I'm super proud of is, honestly, it's not a thing, it's my team. I mean, the, the team is, the legal team is, is incredible because we've been asking a lot of them. And of course, like every single support function in the world, you know, they ask is let's do more for less. And they are very responsive and very engaged. And, you know, the pressure grows, but the engagement grows as the pressure grows as well, because it's a challenge that people are taking. And, and I'm really proud of them for that. And look, I know you've got a very strong reputation, Benoit, for improving career developments of your team, uh, your employees, and building the, the right relationships with your law firms, your external legal service providers. Can you talk a little bit about the first, developing talent and growth and performance of your team? What are some of the things that you, some of the initiatives or what are some of the strategies there? I think we still have a lot of progress to make, to be fair, on because it's in a small pyramidal organized expert organization, it's very difficult to find a path for talent because after a while you meet the limits. What we first did was the company overall has a job grading system 
where you actually get, you know, according to the, your job is actually uh, graded. And according to that grading, your compensation will be calculated. And they were very frustrated because they, they, a lot of people in the legal community found that rightfully so. There was no connection between the reality of their job and, and the grading that HR would come up with. So what we did is we created what we call the career path, which is that for we have, you know, the lawyers, the patent engineers, the, uh, the paralegals and the admins. And for each of those prof jobs, we created a career path. You know, what does a junior do? What does a young senior do? What does a senior do? And what does, as, you know, like a, an expert, expert does? And each time we, we try to categorize the content of each level in terms of autonomy, in terms of impact. And then we went to CHR and we said, this is our vision. Let's try to, you know, how do you match the job grading ladder? And of course, we sort of negotiated with them and we ended up reconciling the HR job grading with our own vision. And so it was like translating the HR tool into a legal professional tool. That was pretty successful, and we've been able to sort out a lot of issues afterwards with that. Yeah, and that must be incredibly impactful for a team because, well, certainly probably nothing more demotivating than feeling like an organization doesn't actually understand what you do or what your con contribution is. And even though that may be not be the case within the legal team, if outside of the legal team because of the grading system or whatever the processes are in place, I can see why you, you focus and prioritize on that because, well, it's just so important to make sure that the, your team's motivated and they're feeling valued and recognized, you know, both within legal and more broadly in the, in the organization. Presumably, that's why that was a key fo focus for you. Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right. Another thing that we did that was interesting is that when the group reorganized, we used to have three huge business units, which, which were turned into 14 different business units. So the business, well, it was like atomized compared to the previous situation. And so we created a new function within the legal community, which what, what, what we call legal support manager. And in fact, the legal support managers are the people who are some sort of a legal key account manager for a given business. And they are the ambassador of that business within the legal community and the ambassador of the legal community within that business and the single point of contact for both. And that has allowed us to recognize some, not all, of our high potential young senior for whom we didn't have managerial positions ready immediately. And there's this whole layer of talent that we were able to recognize throughout, you know, in, and very successfully. So it's probably one of our more successful change because the business really liked having their own key account manager. And for them, it was a good recognition. It's funny, I mean, you say that, but now sounds so obvious that because I think even, even in, in my business, in pursuit, you have account managers for your customers to make sure they're looking after the relationship, they're meeting needs, their white glove service, whatever it's required, so they're feeling loved and well catered for. That's exactly what the business units are. They're your customers within an in-house legal unit. So why not have an account manager? It's funny, the, the, the penny has kind of just dropped for me. It sounds, it's so obvious now that you've mentioned it. I can see absolutely why you'd include it because they are all your customers and you want to make sure that they're all being, they all feel like they're being treated as your customers. And you're absolutely right. No, no, you're absolutely right. And this was so successful because we know we run survey regularly throughout the group to find out how satisfied our partners are internally. And the feedback, the first thing that always comes, you know, 
as a positive thing, was the famous legal support manager. And so when came the time to change our organization, which we just did last July, we actually organized ourselves around that concept, which is that we used to be inward looking, which was we were organized amongst generalists in the regions and specialists in headquarters. So we were organized according to who we were as lawyers. So it was an inward-looking organization. And because of the LSMs, which was... So we became hybrid when we injected the LSM into organization because that that, that was outward-looking. And we realized it was so successful that when we launched our new organization last summer, we created support groups and we organized ourselves around support groups, which is who you support or what type of support you provide. And this create, you know, and the feedback from, from our partners internally was amazing because they could organize, you know, they could understand our organization naturally. That was really useful. Benoit, I'm telling you, there are general counsels out there that are listening to this that are going to say, that is so obvious. That's exactly what I'm going to do because I can see how transformative it can be. And the way you operate, you're right. I mean, and law firms in the past have been very inward looking. They've structured themselves in relation to their own requirements sometimes. Certainly in the early days are getting better rather than the customers, the clients that they're, that they're serving. So certainly historically that's been a problem with law firms. Tell me a little bit about your relationship with law firms and what are the things that Michelin does to, I suppose, to get the best out of its um, law firm relationships. Any particular initiatives or any focus areas for you and the team? Yeah, when we did this famous initial survey, we realized that every legal team had their own law firm around the world. So I won't even dare to share the number of law firms that we had. It was just, just beyond imagination. So we turned this into a portfolio, which and we and we still have a lot of progress to make, but, but it is now a portfolio, which is something that we're trying to manage. And the idea is really to keep the portfolio within reasonable boundaries. And uh, within this portfolio, we have two types of law firms. We have the standard partner law firms and we have the premium partner law firms. And today, because we do a lot of things in-house, we have only one premium partner law firm and we've had a fantastic relationship with them. It's DLA Piper. Right. Oh, my old firm, I should say. I was a partner at DLA for quite some time. A, sh- a shout out there to the DLA Piper to global team. It's a small world, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is. And uh, we have a fantastic relationship with them where we have a governance and it's really a two-way governance. We try to, you know, the governance is aimed at making them a better law firm for us, but we're, we're supposed to be a better uh, client for them as well. And so regularly, it's a two-way street. We're trying to improve and we have very open channels so we can improve each other, you know, the relationship both ways. And they give us what we call value-added services, which is, you know, trainings. And we, because we realize that law firms have a fantastic investment in knowledge management. And so when we have a stronger relationship with a law firm, we expect them to give us access to their knowledge management infrastructure. And that's very valuable for lawyers. Well, Simon Levine there, the global manager partner, is going to be very happy about this shout-out. And oh, let's see if we can get him on the show and talk a little bit more about that. Tell me a little bit about any focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion, both internally and in relation to your law firms. For that, we follow the path that our group has created. Diversity and inclusion is a, is a very high priority for the entire Michelin group. So we, we tend to follow the various initiatives that exist. 
I think, you know, the legal profession is a very, for, for gender equality, I think we have a pretty good statistics in this regard. If you look at, for instance, the 10 regions of the group each have a legal team with a general counsel heading that team. The majority are headed by women today, extremely talented lawyers. And also, I think, you know, we are very keen on developing local managers at Michelin. And we have a very high rate of local managers. And I think the legal department is, is very much within the, these rates as well, where, where all of our managers are, are, you know, come from the area. And now looking back over the last six years in your time at Michelin, what do you think has been your most significant obstacle, if you like, or challenge that you've had to overcome? That's one question. And looking into the future, what do you think the future challenge is likely to be for you and Michelin? I think, you know, when you work in a company which is 130 years old, which is, you know, industrial monument, not only in France, but internationally, which is, you know, local in 170, localized in 170 countries. History, you're very rich with your history, but you can be heavy with your history as well. That's, I was going to say, rich and burdened at the same time. Very much so. So, when it, it's the problem of, of having such a strong heritage is change is even more difficult when tradition is so strong. And so trying to make people understand that you won't change the core, but you would change what is around the core of the company's culture is a very strong challenge. Very difficult to make people feel comfortable that you're not changing. We're not going to lose our soul if we do this. That's difficult. Again, I like the way you described that, not changing what's at the core, but changing what's around the core. And is there anything broader in the legal industry that you see moving forward as a challenge, which might be, I don't know whether the, the analogy might apply, but tell me about what you see as the broader challenges across the legal industry in the future. Well, I think that the first challenge is, is probably that... Uh, we tend to consider that omission is, I always say we walk on two legs at, at Mission Legal is, is to, to protect and to develop. And the first thing you need to do is to protect your company and make sure that it is protected, it is compliant, that, that we're doing the right thing, that we, you know, we don't have a blind spot anywhere and things like that. I think that the first thing we need to understand, it's going to be a challenge for the entire industry, is to understand that protecting used to, to mean keeping the same to a great extent. And now the world is changing so fast. Protecting now, nowadays means adapting permanently and making sure, I think the, the legal industry has to understand that we need to adapt permanently to the evolutions of our environment rather than, you know, keeping the status quo. And I can see, you know, the trends are, are not completely set sometimes. And then presumably, Benoit, um, that applies, that applies internally, in-house, that applies externally with law firms and even more broadly than that. And look, I think that's right. I think there's no doubt. It's not just the legal industry, but we all take comfort in what we know and what what we've been brought up with, what we've been used to. It's a safe place to be, but particularly in legal, that uh, trying to look over the horizon, uh, anticipate the changes and galvanise the troops with the right mindset to to deal with those changes. I don't know if there's anything specific that you have in mind, Benoit, as a particular challenge that you think we'll be facing. 
I think there's one that we're going to be facing, but I think the entire legal industry is going to be facing is that very much along the lines of what you just said, Jim, is, is when you're an expert, people are experts because they want to feel comfortable about th their knowledge and they want to know and to control the environment. That's why you're an expert. Otherwise, you, you, you know, you're a business person. And I think, so it's, it's like digging a tunnel and you have in-depth knowledge of, you know, expertise is an in-depth knowledge of, a, you know, something very technical. And I think now the issues we're facing are systematically, you know, multi-jurisdictional almost always and multi-risk. So we need to, if you, if you take the image of someone digging a tunnel and that's an expert, you need to make sure that this expert is going to dig small tunnels transversely with the other experts. Otherwise, you will not deliver a good advice. And that's a revolution for experts. So in the management of legal expert is going to evolve, you know, because we move to the experts from the expert to the connected expert, connected to the other experts. And the silos are becoming a danger, a liability that we need to, to break. So we need to create this intellectual solidarity between the experts. So when they, they, they devise a solution, they need to think about the other expertise because it, their solution may not be compatible with the other expertise within legal. And our job is to come up with this perfectly shaped solution that's going to be the best possible compromise between the various constraints. And so that, that's one of the challenges, I think. I can see that. It's funny because we were certainly, we've all been, I think, rewarded in the past for the expertise and for the really deep, don't know much about anything else, but you know everything about the area that you're an expert in, but being able to take account of the, I think, that I can't remember exactly how you describe it, but being able to have lateral thinking and understand what other areas of expertise are required to solve this particular problem and to connect at least, not to have that expertise, but to connect and bring that expertise into the fold. And that's what uh, no doubt you as a general counsel will be looking for so that you are not trying to identify each separate expertise stream, if you like, and, and put it all together. Yes, it's really uh, the, neuro, the neuronal network image where, where we need to plug all the brain cells together so everything lights up. I always give this image to my teams and to say, you can be the best brain cell possible if you don't connect to the others. The value you bring to the group is minimal. Fantastic. Now, Benoit, some, questions, some of my favorite questions just to round out our discussion. Can you share with the audience what's the hardest thing, personal or professional, that you've done in your life? Well. Professional, it, it's. I think the hardest thing is is when you have to, you actually take a bet on someone, and you know it's a bet, and the person, he or she does he or her hers best to to, do, but it doesn't work, and you have to let them go. That's the hardest thing, because yeah, that's a very difficult thing to to tackle. But it certainly shouldn't it shouldn't deter us, Benoit, as you know, from taking the next bet because of what we talked about earlier, the impact on someone's life, the growth, and all the ripple effects that end up resulting, which I think is actually personally the most rewarding thing in your own personal career. It's not you're actually, you know, I say this a lot, it's not your you achieving your personal goals, it's those around you and enabling them to achieve theirs. Absolutely. People is, is the most interesting thing in the legal profession, I find. So, I absolutely agree with you. Any advice that you'd give your 25-year-old self that we haven't covered yet, Benoit? Be more patient, probably. Creativity is a great, 
you know, it's a, it's a lot of fun, but you need to take more time to observe probably. Probably be a little more careful with your work-life balance. That never happens. That 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 that's easy to say in hindsight never actually happens at the, at, at the time. And the be more patient, I think it's the same thing. I think that's the thing that you develop as you get more experience and recognize that the the impatience doesn't always serve you well in those early days, but your career is ahead of you, you know, you're driven, it's hard to be patient. You, you know, you're absolutely right. That's a very fair point. But you, you see, when I joined Michelin, I love to, one of my best habits is to, I try to modelize things. I love to modelize a lot of things within our activity. And that, that's one of the funds I have at work. And I modelize quite a lot of things and I try to deploy them too fast and too many at the same time. And not respecting the rhythm of change management, I think, is, is something that I just can't afford anymore. So I've learned my lesson. Well, sometimes we got to break a few eggs, Benoit, to make that omelette. My last question, is there anything that keeps you up at night now? Well, there are a lot of things that keep me up at night. There are professionally and personally. Professionally, there's what I call the two blind spots. The first blind spot is, is there someone in my teams who is in distress, who is in pain, who is encountering difficulties, and I don't, I don't get it? That has happened to me before, and I'd like that never to happen again. So that's the first blind spot. The second blind spot, is there a risk that is either emerging or, or growing and, and, and it's, 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 I'm not seeing it? Very classical. And on a more personal front, it's, am I doing enough every day to prepare the handover of the world to my children? And I'm not sure I am, to tell you the truth. Benoit, can I ask how old are your children and how many? I have three children, three daughters, and they are 17, 14, and 14. I think it's something that every parent thinks about and worries about too. I ask myself exactly the same question. You know, the world served me pretty well, but am I paying it forward, doing enough to pay it forward so it's going to serve the next generation? Well, and um, I think I have the same guilt. I don't think I necessarily am. But anyway, on that note, that slightly downward note, Benoit, I've had a fantastic time speaking with you, but it's, it's been an absolute blast. I really appreciate you joining me. Thank you very much. Bye-bye for now, Benoit. Thanks a lot, Jim. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.